Let's open our Bibles once again uh, to the book, the letter of 1 Thessalonians, where today uh, we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, kind of the, the, the first half uh, of this chapter. And if you remember from our time last week, I just want to recap a little bit that uh, 1 Thessalonians was a letter written by Paul to the church in Thessalonica, and it was really uh, probably his first letter that he wrote uh, that, that we find in the scriptures, uh, but also it was an attempt for Paul to reconnect with the church that, that he had uh, helped to establish following a, a report that he received from Timothy about how the church was doing. So Timothy had reported to Paul and he said, hey, the, the, the church in Thessalonica, they are flourishing despite continual and growing persecution. And so Paul says, well, I'm going to write them this letter. Uh, and really this letter is twofold. The first part of it is he wants to encourage and celebrate their faithfulness to God. So over and over and over again, Paul is going to be just uh, seeking to encourage and celebrate what God is doing through this church. How the gospel has impacted them and how that impact has led to them the bear, in the bearing of fruit uh, of gospel proclamation to the world around them. But secondly, kind of the second half of the letter is that uh, Paul seeks to challenge them uh, to focus and continue on as they face persecution, right? So some of Paul's letters, if you go and you read them in the New Testament, uh, some of them focus on a lot of really just kind of deep-rooted sin. You see it in Galatia, in, in, the, in the letter to the Galatians, where he says, hey, who's bewitched you? You're believing a false gospel. In 1 Corinthians, like there's a whole slew of mess that he's working them through. But here in this letter particularly, while Paul addresses some things, really what he's doing is he's saying, hey, I want to encourage you. But in that encouragement, I want you to remember the gospel. I want you to remember what has been done for you, but also in the midst of what's being done to you, I want you to continue on, right? And so as we think about that, as we kind of sit with that, I laid out kind of a goal for us is that as a church, as we work through these two letters, that we would be encouraged first and foremost by the good news of the gospel. As a cell, and what that would do is as a, as a people who, who are, are called by this good news that we would be a people that, that worship, that celebrate, that, that give God glory with our lives. But also that we would focus just as this church is called to focus. That we would focus and continue on with the call that we've been called to as God's people, knowing that while we live in the now, we long for the future when all will be made new. And so for us today, we are called to live radical lives of faith in the face of whatever might come our way. And this is what I mean, Just this is not an exhaustive list, but if I'm going to talk about what does it mean for us to live radical lives? Well, that we would live radical lives of worship. That we would be a people uh, that, that worship deeply with our lives. Because I believe all of life is worship. That we would live ra- radical lives of obedience to the word of God. That we didn't, wouldn't just come in and say, okay, let's open and see what this says. But as we, as we hear the word of God, that we would be transformed by it and then walk in obedience to it. That we would live radical lives of discipleship where we seek uh, to be a disciple that's grown uh, and sanctified more into the image of Jesus. But as we do that, that we would go and that we would, as Matthew 28 says, that we would make disciples. That are made in the image, teaching them all that Jesus has commanded. That we live our radical lives of service and generosity and hospitality. That we would live such radical lives in the workplace 
That, that uh, what would happen, whether you're a boss or an employee, that, that they, other people would come to you and say, hey, what's going on? You don't complain like everybody else complains. You, work, you seem to work harder. You seem to have more joy in your work than other people. You see, in all of this, it would be such a response that our lives would lead to people even asking us, hey, why are you doing that? And if you're doing that, like, who are you following? What brought about this change in your life? And what does it look like for me to live that way? And so on the heels of the two reminders that Paul laid out last week, he calls them to remember the gospel, but also in remembering it, he calls them to uh, realize that the gospel carries with it cost. What he's going to do today is he's going to take some time in the next part of this letter to defend himself and his ministry because a group of people in Thessalonica were seeking to undermine his authority. So if you go to Acts 17, what happens is Paul enters the city, And he proclaims the good news. People are saved, both Jew and Gentile. And a church is established. And as kind of the pattern goes, not just through the early church, but I believe with every church, is as the gospel is proclaimed and people come to know Jesus, then persecution comes, right? Uh, And there's varying degrees of that. Uh, But this is what has happened. And, And the persecution in Acts 17 got so bad that the leaders in Thessalonica went to Paul and Silas and they said, Hey guys, we're glad that you're here, but hey, y'all need to leave. But they didn't just leave. It says that they left under the cover of night. So during the day they were there acting that everything was, you know, going as it should. And then everybody goes to sleep and they wake up. Paul and Silas are gone. And what's happened is these critics, uh, they took advantage of this and they sought to discredit Paul. Well, what they're doing is they're likely saying things like, hey, uh, you know, I know Paul came, but guess what? He left you behind. He was here when it was easy, but when things got hard, he just kind of took off. Paul took advantage of you. They're even saying some things like, the kind of the connotation is, hey, he just wanted what he could get from you, likely monetary means or some desire that he had and a need to be met. And once he got it, he left. He's no apostle. He was just some traveling salesman. And today in our time in chapter 2, Paul will not simply lay out a defense of his ministry to the church in Thessalonica, but he's going to lay before them his heart. And really what we see is we see this list of the marks of a pastor that are to be modeled by both pastors and people alike. So, so what we're going to see today is we're going to see a lot of marks that we, we I believe that, man, uh, uh, as a pastor and an elder, that these are things that should define and, and be a part, they should be marks of my life. For the other el- the two elders we have, they should be marks of their lives. But also, like in that, uh, don't think for a moment that these are also not to be marks for your life as well. Paul says over and over again, like, imitate me as I what? As I imitate Christ. And, and so when you look at these, don't just be like, oh, okay, whatever, this is just for leadership. No, this is for every follower of Jesus. And so let's begin by reading the first six verses of chapter 2. Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. 
But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we see glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. All right, so quickly before, I say quickly, kind of quickly, before we move and begin working through the text, I want to talk about something that I believe is key to understand, to understanding not only Paul's heart in this portion of the text, but really the actual heart of the gospel and what it means for our identity and purpose as followers of Jesus. And what I want to talk about for just a moment is our union in Christ. Because it's something that Paul cared deeply about. Paul, in his letters, talks about, he uses the terms union with Christ, or in Christ, or in God, or in Christ in God, some 160 times in his writings. And so this statement, this theology of union with Christ is something that, that, that he cared deeply about. Because I believe that Paul understood that if you get this, then you begin to really uh, understand the gospel at a deeper level and understand what it means to be the church at a deeper level. And so what is our union with Christ? Well, just simply stated, it's that you're in Christ. Meaning that at the very moment faith is ignited and you become a Christ follower, you are united with Christ. To be united with something is to be joined together for a common purpose. So you, at the moment faith is ignited, you become a Christ follower, you are united with Christ. You were, you are dead to sin and alive in Christ. I think there's many ways that we kind of express this in the church. One, you'll see next week, right? Like next week we're doing baptisms for some. And in the coming weeks, I believe we've got some more on the agenda. But uh, in baptism, it is a symbol to, to show and share with the world, hey, I'm in Christ. And what do we do when we baptize is when they, you are buried with Christ in baptism and you were raised to walk in newness of life, right? It's what one writer terms as the J-curve. So what the J-curve is, is I am dying with Christ, but I'm also rising with Christ over and over and over again. It is a mark of our life that when we're in Christ, it is, man, I'm dying daily with Christ so that I might rise with Him. So I might live as He did. You know, for Christ died to self that He might rise in authority. We follow His command to die to self so that we might rise with Him. Sinclair Ferguson on this union said, he said, you are somebody over whose life the dominion and power of sin has been broken. This is what it means to be in Christ. The power, the dominion and power of sin has been broken. You begin to learn to, listen to this, interpret your life in terms of what God says about you because you're united to Christ instead of interpreting the gospel in terms of where you are in your struggle. What if we began there? How many of you, that's your first place to say, hey, let me remember who I am in Christ when that person cuts me off in traffic, uh, rather than in the midst of that struggle, rather than saying, oh, wait, 
I need to catch up to them and let them know how I feel with words and whatever else uh, and or just cutting them off, right? Like what does it look like? For you to begin to interpret life, interpret the, 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 your, your life, you're united to Christ instead of interpreting the gospel in terms of where your struggle is. You see, this doctrine, which I believe is often neglected, is important because it sets forth a way of looking at and living life that we often forget. You see, we tend to interpret life based upon a laundry list of what other people say and, and, and other things that we desire other than Jesus. You see, that's not what we're called to. Everything in our lives is to be interpreted through the lens of who God is and what He has done for us, specifically in the person and work of Jesus. Because you see, that then tells us who we are and what we do. Since we planted the church uh, a long, long time ago, uh, one thing that we've talked about over and over and over again is that, man, your identity in Christ, your union with Christ, what that means is that your being, who you are, actually tells you what you do. But we often get it backwards. See, you know, the way we're to live is that we're to say, okay, who is God and what has God done? And because of what God has done, who does that say I am? And then, because I know who I am, because of what God has done and who He is, therefore I go do. I think so often through life, we live it backwards. We say what I do tells me who I am, and then that tells me who what Jesus has actually done for me, right? And is it enough? And then I can know who God is. It's insanity. I mean, if you don't believe me, just think about like how we commonly introduce ourselves. How, if you meet someone new, you say, hey, I'm Kyle, and uh, what's the next thing you ask them? What do you do? Now, now, I don't think that's a bad thing. Like, we should learn, like, that's a way to get to know one another. Because, But what we often do is when you say, I, you know, I'm Kyle, I'm a pastor, people begin to inter- interpret who I am based on what I do. And that's a really rough place for me to be in, okay? Because the box is about this small. And usually they just throw it away and turn around and walk off. Um, but for you, like, you can begin to interpret your life by what you do. Man, be proud of what you do. But make sure it's rooted in what he's done first. That your value is not found in what you do, but in what, who he says you are. And so today, you are in Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're in Christ. In the midst of still struggling with sin patterns, in the midst of brokenness, you're in Christ. Just as I said when we kicked off our call to worship, like, you you wake up built upon the solid rock, you live your day built upon the solid rock, and you go to sleep built upon the solid rock. You interpret everything through what it means to be in Christ. Both today and tomorrow and the next day and all of it. And so why do I begin our time this way? Well, first, I I think it's just a challenge. Like we need to learn about what it means to have union with Christ. And so I encourage you, go read Paul's letters. And every time you you see in Christ or in God or hidden in Christ or hidden with Christ or in Jesus and God, like highlight it. 
But secondly, this theology is important for Paul because today he's going to make an argument for his ministry to the church in Thessalonica. You see, Paul is not trying to defend himself for the sake of his image, but for the sake of the gospel flourishing. This is a picture of his heart as a pastor. Next, this theology is important for a young church that finds, who find themselves facing some extreme persecution. And so when Paul is saying, hey, keep going, it's you keep going because you're looking through the lens of what it means to be hidden in Christ. I see every situation through my union with Jesus. Guess what? Everything ultimate's already taken care of. So, hey, uh, as Paul says, to live as Christ, to die is gain. What can man do to me? Now, while we hear that, I, I want to also say that that's not always easy, right? Which is what this church is wrestling with, this doubt of, okay, we're following Jesus, but now it's really, really, really hard. Well, what does that mean for my relationship with Jesus? But, hey, if Jesus, you know, what does it mean for Paul, right? Did he really come? Was he really who he said he was? And if not, then is Jesus really who he said he is? But for us today, this theology is important for us as we live our lives because we need to begin to see, understand, and live in light of our union with Christ instead of allowing ourselves to become persuaded and dictated by our situations and circumstances. You see, you are who you are because of Christ, not because of what you do or don't do or because of what you face. You see, the gospel redeems, defines, and gives purpose to all of your life. And so may we interpret all of it through Him. And so with this in mind, we see that Paul turns from his initial opening to the church to a defense of his time with the church in the hopes that he might rebuke the lies while also giving assurance to their life in Christ and how the gospel shaped and was modeled in Paul's care for them. And so he begins with calling them to remember that their coming to them was not in vain. Paul says, hey, remember, when we came to you, it wasn't in vain. Actually, what he's going to say in a moment is that not only was it not in vain, it was actually for something. So what does it mean for something to be in vain? Well, in vain means that it's a lost cause or it's useless. Paul is telling this young, persecuted church to remember that their coming to them was not for nothing. And how many of you, you can look at, maybe you look back on things in your life. Moments in your life, maybe fads that kind of came about and you realize that they were useless and a lost cause, right? You have those moments and you're just like, maybe not in the moment, but you're later, you're like, that was just in vain. Like that, that had no, held no meaning for my life. I honestly challenge you to think about the things throughout your life that either you made a big deal about or others made a big deal about that in the end were done in vain. I, I thought about a few things just kind of in my own life that I think back on. The first, um, how many of you remember Y2K? Right? Like this ominous thing that you, nobody really knew what it was about, but everyone was scared of it. And really they were just scared that certain numbers wouldn't change when it hit midnight. 
that computers would just forget and they would go back to zero and the bank system and all that. I don't remember everything. I was in the eighth grade, didn't really care about it. Uh, you know, some of you are like, I was born in 2000s. Like, uh, you know, like there was time before that. Um, but like it was this huge thing that everyone was freaking out about. But guess what? At midnight, everything turned to 2000. And we've just been going ever since. You know, the other one I thought about was, um, this is going to show my age, like how many of you remember like social studies class, like the Oregon Trail game on the computer? Yeah, everybody's like, that was the greatest thing ever, right? Like the, my, the highlight of my week is whenever I would go to social studies class and the teacher would say, hey, today's your day to play Oregon Trail, as if it was going to teach me something, right? I didn't learn a thing other than, you know, how to ford a river. But guess what? I now, I've never had to ford a river, okay? Like, it's just not, so, like, it was useless. But man, I just, like, it was, to get to the end is what I wanted. And it was really hard to get to the end. Cursive writing. How many, like, you still write in cursive? I can barely write my name in cursive, right? Like, you know, like, and some of you, like, that's it. Like, it's not in vain, but for me, like... I don't even know if my kids know what cursive writing is. One more, long division. Now the accountants in the room, you're like, hey, but are you really using it or is the computer doing it for you? Um, But I remember like just painstakingly going and, you know, doing whatever you did in math. I don't remember anymore. I don't do it, Uh, you know. But because I don't use it anymore. The computer, my phone calculates it. I can say, hey, Google, what's this answer? And it'll tell me, kids, don't use it. But um, you see, for those that Paul is writing, the temptation is far greater than Y2K. Or how to not get dysentery on the Oregon Trail. Like these people are actually wrestling with whether Paul's coming to them and their faith in Christ was in, in the end of no value. I mean, they actually have like some reasoning to believe that, like they're dying. But Paul argues against this because Paul understands something we need to understand today. Guess what? You can't interpret your life through your circumstances. You cannot interpret your life through your circumstances. Life in a broken world will be just that, broken. And when following Christ in a broken world, we have to understand that our suffering is not judgment, but it's part of our life in Christ. It's part of that union. And yet God is working all through all things to bring about His ultimate glory and our ultimate good. Like, keep going. It's not in vain. Next, Paul states that not only did they not come in vain, they actually came and boldly proclaimed the gospel to them without error. Now look at the source of their boldness. He says, in God. Not in their suffering. He says their boldness is in our God. Like, again, Paul's reverting back to, man, my union gives me uh, lenses to interpret life, but also to live life. Look at the product. He says we, 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 we proclaimed, in, we had confidence to proclaim. Even though they had already suffered in Philippi, and they would continue to suffer they continued to proclaim in confidence. Guess what? Evidence of genuine faith in the gospel. This is evidence of genuine faith in the gospel in Paul's life. Because he was willing to suffer for the sake of it. Guess what? Like you will suffer for what you love and believe in. Like you will suffer for it. 
Menial daily things, right? Like if you're working out, like that's a suffering, like, right? Like, but if you believe in it, that it's going to get you to a point, you'll do it. But are we willing to? Do we believe in it? Do we like in our, in, uh, like in life, like are you willing to suffer for things? Because ultimately like your, your love for Jesus and you believe that man, you are called to live a life that is different that's not interpreted by circumstance and struggle. Next, Paul says that not only did they proclaim with boldness, with confidence, but it was also without error. This goes back to verse 5 in chapter 1 when Paul celebrates that, he says, our gospel came to them not only with words, but power. What Paul is doing here is saying, hey, look, I, I, our gospel, uh, it, it, we came with that area. And guess what? We get to participate in the sharing of this good news that saves. But not only was it without error, it was also without impurity. The words for impurity there is, is, is kind of combating these uh, selfish connotations that these critics are presenting, that they would have selfish ambition pride, greed, or that they would be promoting themselves for their own popularity. You see, it was very common for traveling salesmen and preachers to come and promote teaching as a means to fleece the people out of their money and then just leave. That's what's being proclaimed by those seeking to cause doubt in this church. And so today, what is the focus and hope for the news that you proclaimed? The the news that you proclaim, what is the focus and hope? Is it Christ be magnified or self be magnified? You see, Paul in his defense shares over and over and over again that none of what he did was for the promotion of self, the desire for greed or to flatter people with glossy words that he might seek glory for himself. Paul shares that in his coming and in his going, all was so that he might speak the gospel to please God and God alone. And the reason he can say that is because, again, Paul understands his union with Christ. His faith in Christ tells him that his approval is not based upon how well his ministry functions, but upon the basis of what Christ has already done. And so he can boldly come proclaiming the hope of the gospel, no matter the result or response, because he has nothing to lose. And the same holds true for you. Oh, that we would quit caring so much about the responses of others. And that we would rather remember the team that we're on. Not the Astros. Not the Rangers. We're in Christ. Your life, value, identity has already been secured and obtained in Christ. Nothing else is needed. Therefore, boldly go. This is how Paul begins his defense. But guess what? Paul knows that that upon hearing that, that those critics, and even those that are reading and listening to the letter, they're probably going to say, well, prove it, Paul. It's one thing to say you didn't want that, but prove it to us. And so guess what? Paul does that in verses 7 through 12. Look at what he says. But we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you. Not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You were witnesses in God also. 
How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul shares in verses 1-6 through that his coming was not in vain because he boldly proclaimed the gospel of Christ rather than the boasting and promotion of self for his own gain. But if they still don't believe it, he says, look at the way that I lived among you. And so really what he does is he presents six ways that he didn't just preach it, but he actually lived it. All of it is centered upon and flowing from his union with Christ. You see, Paul doesn't do this simply because he is Paul. He is Paul who is in Christ. The first thing he says is that we were gentle. That word for gentleness there is patient and caring. You see, since Paul was confident of their union with Christ, uh, of the, the people in Thessalonica, when he looked at them, he says, no, I have confidence that you were in Christ. He took care of them. And the word he uses is like a mother takes care of her children. Now, what Paul is doing here is actually, he's, he's not doing anything like super new or significant. Actually, he's just following in the steps of Jesus. You see, the same gentleness was modeled by Jesus. If you look through the Gospels, like, guess what? The disciples, they mess it up all the time. But Jesus, over and over and over again, is patient and caring and gentle, and he leads them to maturity. But also, we get this mother metaphor. Well, what this metaphor it really describes is it's the picture of a mother getting down on the level of her child to play with them so that she might be childlike with them. And I want us to, to hold on to this because we're, we're going to come back to this metaphor here in just a little bit. Because the second thing we see is that Paul says, look, we were affectionate and giving. You see, because of the love that Paul had for the people, he came not simply sharing a message of good news and then passing through town. He said he shared himself with the people. You see, Paul came not to be ministered to for selfish gain, but to minister to them in really two forms. Uh, But the goal was the same. The goal was that they would come to faith in Christ. And so he says, we shared the gospel of Christ, but also we shared ourselves. For just as Jesus did not merely come with words, but gave his life, he is the word that what? That put on flesh and dwelt among us. Paul in this moment is saying, look, I came to you with words, but also, man, you saw my life. What Paul is getting at, he's saying, hey, I didn't just come and talk and like, you know, have it all together. Man, you saw me, you knew me. Guess what, church, for, for whether it's uh, church leadership or every church partner, follower of Jesus, guess what? Man, you are to both know others but be known by others. And you can say all the right things. You can know the scriptures backwards and forwards. You can, you know, have perfect timing whenever, you know, you somebody asks, like, how are you doing? And you say, bless, bless, bless. Like, blessings on blessings on blessings. Like, grace on grace. You know, you can do all that. But do we really, do you really know people and are they known by you? And I want to say this, like, this is, I'm, I'm, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, okay? Safe place. Like, 
If you want that, if you know you need that, this can't be the only time. It can't. It can't be just, well, I'm going to give an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday morning. And I hope they really know me. And I hope I really know them. No, it, it, it takes living life together. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, even in my, in, in my good and my bad, you know me and I know you. In my ups and my downs, in my triumphs and my failures, you see me and know me. This is why as a church we do things like missional communities and equip and things like that because, you know, we, we want to be... But guess what? It should it's like, oh, that it would extend beyond that. You see, the definition of Christian love is that we give of ourselves because this is what Jesus did for us. Next, Paul says we labored. He, he points to his working day and night so that he wouldn't be a burden to those Likely this young church was probably impoverished, one by persecution, uh, but also, I mean, man, they're just living their lives. But Paul said we weren't there for monetary gain. Rather, Paul had a job so that he wouldn't be a burden. We see in other places Paul was a tent maker. Next, Paul says, hey, we preach the gospel. So their focus and goal was steady and did not change. They continually preached the gospel even in the face of persecution. It would have been really easy for Paul to say, hey, I'm going to give you this message and then just parachute out and say, good luck. Hopefully it doesn't get too hard. But he was there in the midst of it. Because Paul's focus was he understood the now, but also he understood what to come. What was to come as a people living in the now. Our lives are to be marked by grace for today and hope for the future. Next, Paul says, we were Christ-like in conduct. He says, look at our conduct. Look at how we lived. I think I've already expressed this. I guess what, church? Your conduct should match your words. Not in perfection, but it should bear the fruit of repentance and faith. Does your conduct match your words? Paul says theirs was holy, righteous, and blameless. It was holy because it was, de- it was devoted conduct that was pleasing to God. It was righteous... Because in their righteousness, they, they were held righteous dealings with others, and it was blameless in regards to public reputation. Now, guess what? Paul and those that were with him didn't produce any of that on their own. It was all because of the grace of Jesus. And then lastly, Paul says, look, I was a father to you. Paul points to the reminder that they treated them, that he, that he treated them as a father is to treat their children by exhorting them as an example. The word there for exhort is to encourage, to comfort, and to spur them on. Now, now I want to take that father to them metaphor and the mother metaphor we saw, and I want to just, uh, in closing, I want to make a couple of notes. The first is, this is to everyone, this is both to parents in the room, but also this is to all believers in the room. Because I believe we're all, like Paul was single, and yet he says I'm both a mother and a father. You see, both are needed as you lead. So today, as you hear mother and father, don't separate the tenderness of a mother and the exhortation of a father. 
Like if you're a parent in the room, guess what? You're to be both tender and to exhort. Christian, you are to be both. Tender and to be an exhorter, an encourager, a, a, a comforter, and one who spurs others on. You see, this is not simply a combination of gender roles, but it is a metaphor that mimics the reality. Because guess what? Every metaphor breaks down at some point. It is a metaphor that mimics the reality of what we are to be. These metaphors point to the gospel reality. And so today, are you tender? Like, do you, are you willing to get down? Like, that's what Jesus, like he would, he, he, he came and put on flesh. I mean, he got like face to face where the disciples were. He said, okay, here's where you are. Let me lead you further. That's why Jesus cared so much. Like, bring the, let the children come to me. Because anyone that wants to enter the kingdom has to have this kind of faith. But also today, do you encourage comfort and spur on? You see, in all this, Paul is telling the church then and now to remember that we are to in, interpret all of life in light of our union with Christ, which calls us out of darkness and into light, out of death and into life, that we might live in a manner worthy of God who calls us into His kingdom and glory. And so again, remember who you are in Christ, and from that, go and live for Christ. Next, while the def- this defense by Paul is pastoral in nature and provide marks for those who pastor in the church, these marks, again, are to be imitated by all who follow Jesus. We, you see it in verse 6 of chapter 1 when he says, hey, you've imitated this, and we're going to see it next week in verse 14. He says, you become imitators of what you've seen. And so how do we respond to this? I'm going to begin this way. If you're a follower of Jesus, live in light of your union with Christ. Interpret life in Christ. You are no longer just a human made in God's image. You are in Christ, a new creation, commissioned to live out, live not for yourself, but for the glory of God as you proclaim the hope of the gospel in word and deed to those around you. But in, if that's what we say we're to be, man, let us be a people that prove it. Not so that we might, not so that our doing might tell us who we are, but may we be a people who say, no, this is who I am in Christ, and this is how I'm going to show you. So may we prove it by being gentle in a world that promotes brutality and rage. May we prove it by being affectionate and giving in a world that promotes hate and greed. May we prove it by laboring day and night for the sake of the gospel and others in a world that only seeks to labor for self. May we prove it by preaching the gospel to a world that needs to hear better news. May we prove it by living holy, righteous, and blameless lives so that we might then proclaim the source of our holy, righteous, and blameless lives to a people who need to be made new. May we prove it by encouraging one another to live in Christ daily, no matter the situation or circumstance, walking in a manner worthy of God and the kingdom that we've been brought into. Like today, if, you, if you're in Christ, man, may the words of our mouth, may the meditation of our heart be pleasing to God in how we live it out. And today, like, if you're not in Christ... 
Like if you're hearing all this and you're like, oh man, I don't know. Like I don't have that rest. I don't have that identity. I, I still think I need to prove myself and do something to be made right before God. Man, today is your invitation. Man, come to him. Come talk to me. Come talk to him. If you know any partners in our room, go, go talk to him and say, hey, what does it mean to be in Christ? Don't be shy. Don't be ashamed. Say, well, like, I'm a few, you know, I've been living a lot, I've lived a long life and I still don't know. Like, don't, like, no, today, like, is your invitation. Because there's no life apart from Him. And so I'm going to have the team come back up. As they make their way back up, here in a moment, what we're going to do is we're going to sing. As we sing, we're going to cry out the reality that Jesus is better and we are in Him. And no matter what comes our way, Jesus is better. But also what we're going to do before we sing is we're going to share in communion. And what communion is, is us standing together and saying, hey, this is a reminder that we're in Christ. That that we've been purchased by the blood of Jesus and we're in Him. And so again, if you're a follower of Jesus, we want to invite you to come and share in that. The way we're going to do that is that uh, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we've got uh, some people that are come forward and they're going to present the elements to you. And you can just make your way down the middle. You can receive the elements and go sit back down. And then I'll lead us together as the body of Christ in remembering this union. So we're going to do that and then we're going to sing and celebrate. But I, I ask, even as I'm, I'm about to pray, that you would take a moment just to, to quiet your heart and maybe even ask the Spirit to um, remind you of who you are in Christ. That no matter what you're walking through, it's not in vain for all of life has purpose in Christ Jesus. And that as you think even about these marks of what it, uh, uh, and again, not an exhaustive list, but these marks of what it means to follow Christ and live for Him to, to um, bear the fruit of our salvation. That you would ask God to make you gentle, affectionate, giving, a laborer for the kingdom, one who preaches the gospel, that lives a holy, righteous, and blameless life before God and others, and that you would be an encourager daily. That you, would be, that you would seek to live out and proclaim this good news to those around you. So I'm going to pray and then they're going to come forward to present the elements and you can make your way down and uh, after we're seated, we'll share in communion. And Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there is hope in your word. And to God, I pray for everyone in here this morning that as we uh, reflect on that, that we would, uh, no matter what's, no matter how difficult the circumstance, that we would not uh, be drawn uh, to, to say this is useless, this is of no value, this is in vain. But rather, we would look to you, that we would interpret all of life through our union with you and you alone. And in doing that, that we uh, would then. Uh, Man, live differently in light of that because we're freed up. To not have to to wrestle or question or anything like that, although there will be moments when we do that, but as we continually remind ourselves of who we are in you, that those things, we would lay those things at your feet and then uh, go and live life, uh, live radical lives. 
that we proclaim in our uh, a God, not, not simply a gospel proclamation, but a way that it says, hey, no, here's evidence. Here's the fruit of what it means to have life in you. And if there's someone here today that doesn't have that life, that they would come to know you today, that their faith would be ignited by the power of your grace and love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.